trust in institutions is one of the key indicators as to whether something like conspiracy theories are going to be more effective. So one of the reasons why some of these attempts to spread disinformation have at least theoretically been more effective or been far more reported on is because the general American trust in institutions is far lower. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can be to for a time populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. To be honest, I have mostly checked out of Brexit a couple of years ago. It felt as though everything was changing every day and nothing was changing over the course of a week or a month or a year. Basically, as I am recording this, there is still just about as much uncertainty about what form Brexit will take as there was in the days after the referendum. But there's something else that we can already deduce from the way in which Brexit has gone. And that is that we tend to have an assumption about politics, but there are certain safety valves which will make sure that absolute chaos will be held at bay. That if something is going wrong, there's a set of people who can step in and make sure to bring it to a minimally rational and safe conclusion. Given how close we are now to a chaotic hard Brexit, given how little collective action people are capable of in the British political system, in one of the countries which a few years ago might have seemed like one of the better ruled in the world, I think we need to question that assumption. There's no guarantee that one day humans will wake up and coordinate to do the right thing about climate change. There's no guarantee that we will always know how to ensure that some rogue soldier doesn't deploy a nuclear weapon, that two countries don't come to nuclear blows over a minor dispute. In that sense, the lesson of Brexit is already very important and won't change depending on just how disastrous the next weeks and months turn out to be. For today's episode, I had a lot of fun speaking to Heidi Twarek. Heidi is an old colleague and friend of mine. She is, to give all the official stuff, an assistant professor of history at the University of British Columbia and the author of a new book, which is very good, called News from Germany, The Competition to Control World Communications. But more importantly, she's somebody who really thinks very acutely about how to deal with digital technology and how to think of information warfare and all the kinds of things that countries like Russia are trying to do as just a standard feature of our geopolitical system. We've talked about everything from how to regulate Twitter and Facebook to how to make sure that our democracies survive Vladimir Putin. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Heidi. Thanks for having me, Asha. So listen, you're both an historian and somebody who thinks a lot about public policy and you get at the problem, the challenge posed by the rise of digital media from that perspective. What do you think is the top thing that people get wrong when they think about digital media because they don't have a historical perspective? Oh, that's such a good question. So I think the first thing that, that people really get wrong is the impulse to say that everything we're facing is wholly unprecedented, that the internet is posing challenges of scale and speed that we have never seen before. But in fact, if we look at this historically, we see that we have faced multiple times the ways in which 
governments and firms try to manipulate new media to achieve broader goals. And we can also see the ways in which governments and others have tried to rein in media and the massive unintended consequences of those sorts of efforts. So I always go back and forth on that argument. I'm very alive to what Evgeny Mozorov once called the danger of chronocentricity. This idea that you live in the time that's going to be absolutely defining for humanity and it's completely unlike any other historical period. People have done it over and over again and it's easy to see the parallels and sort of laugh at ourselves. At the same time, I also compare, for example, the invention of the printing press to today. And I notice that the book spread quite slowly across Europe, certainly in the first years. Whereas 10, 12 years into the existence of Facebook, it is available to 2 billion people in basically every country in the world, save North Korea. So what if we really do live in this special time? Why shouldn't we think that we live in this special time? So I'd say there's a couple of things that are quite similar about what's going on and some things that are really genuinely different. So a couple of the things that are quite similar is the hope initially that some sort of media and new medium is going to bring connection and therefore peace amongst different peoples in a way that we've never seen before. That's something we see with transatlantic submarine telegraphy that first occurs in 1866, something we see with radio, etc., etc. And then suddenly that turn when you realize, no, hang on a moment, this technology can also be used to spread hatred or violence. And then often and hopefully we arrive somewhere in the middle. So, that so what you're saying is a sort of whiplash that we've yeah. experienced in the last 10 years. I mean, I remember I started teaching a class on democracy in the digital age at Harvard, gosh, perhaps six or seven years ago. And it was really hard work to get the students to see that digital technology could potentially have downfalls. And they just didn't buy it. I spent the whole course trying to talk about some of the potential opportunities, but also to try and get them to see that it could have downsides. And in the final essays they wrote, they all said, no, 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 digital technology is going to be amazing and it's going to do all these amazing things in the world. Now it's kind of the opposite, right? If you were going to say, no, actually Facebook and Twitter are great for the world, people would say, what are you talking about? So we've gone through this whiplash. And what he's saying is that we've done that before with what, with a printing press, with radio, with a telegram? What were the different moments when that happened? Yeah, so printing press is one. Telegraphy is definitely another. It seems like it's going to spread world peace in the 1860s, but then we still have wars. And in the early 1870s, we also have a financial crisis. So at that moment, it suddenly becomes clear and people start to see, hang on a moment, this can be used to actually make a financial crash happen faster not to mm. prevent one. So that's actually quite similar to our debates about flash crashes and algorithmic trading, extremely similar debate in the early 1870s. So there that whiplash also starts to happen. But we also see even later with telegraphy that governments start to say, hang on a moment, this shouldn't be something that's just controlled by companies. This is something that governments also need to have some control over because it can also be used as part of our information warfare weaponry. So they start to lay further cables so they can try to control it. So that's where I see some of the parallels with today as well. And I want to say I absolutely agree with you with this moment of digital utopianism. I remember writing things in about 2011, 2012, where I would say, hang on a moment, the history tells us this isn't always going to be roses and flowers. Right, right. This stuff can be used by nefarious characters as well. And people are like, what are you talking about, Heidi? You're such a pessimist. And now I'm in the moment where I'm saying, hang on a moment, not everything that digital media are being used for is bad. 
these tools can also be used for social activism and the contemporary moment's impulse is to say, no, everything that is happening on social media is not great. And I think it's important for us to not fall into those binaries, but to start thinking about, hang on a moment, how do we get to the point where we realize we as humans are determining what we do with this technology? This technology doesn't determine us. Of course, it can be weaponized in various psychological ways, but we actually need to reassert control and figure out how do we end up with a balance rather than believing it's either everything is fantastic or everything is terrible. You've implied that in the past people would end up in a middle space in the end. So what would that middle space look like with regard to Facebook and Twitter? I guess it is that it's a neutral medium and depends on how we use it. But beyond that, how should we think of the advantages and the risks of it in a balanced manner? So I think one way that we could start to try to do that would be to have a bit more transparency about what actually is happening within these companies. So in a way, the companies are in a bit of a catch-22 because they're nervous about making more data available because they're worried about what might happen with it. But on the other hand, regulators and others think, well, if they're not giving us data, it must mean that everything is terrible on the platform. So we should clearly regulate them. And from my perspective, something like what we would call in policy terms the co-regulatory model is something that we could hopefully move towards where we actually have a world where government, tech companies and civil society are having much more transparent exchanges about what is actually happening on these platforms. Academics can do much more robust research about them because I wonder if many of our assumptions about what's going on on the platforms may turn out to be erroneous. So that's a sort of optimistic mm. perspective that it turns out that a lot of what is happening... So let's talk concretely about this. So there's an assumption that a lot of fake news and a lot of hatred spreads on social media. What would be the argument that says perhaps that's wrong? Why can't we be sure of that? So we would need to actually have more stuff from Facebook. So if you look at a lot of the research in depth, what you see is a lot of it is based on Twitter. And that's because Twitter makes its API or its interface much more available to researchers than a Facebook does or a YouTube. So a lot of what we have on the other platforms will be something that's a bit more anecdotal. And of course, then you're going to go for the big stories about the conspiracy theorists and the so on and so forth. And that makes a lot of sense. But if we had broader based data and research akin to some of what we can do on Twitter, we may find that there's all sorts of low level organizing that could be really helpful or that there are small tweaks to Facebook's algorithm that could end up drastically changing what it is that's being shared in really meaningful ways. So that if you had this sort of coalition I'm talking about of government, civil society, companies, civil society could say, all right, how about this change to the algorithm? How about surfacing this stuff? How about optimizing for different kinds of emotions? Because now the assumption is, okay, what the companies want is engagement. Mm. And if it's negative emotions that generate engagement, anger, fear, polarization, let's optimize for that. But what if this sort of more co-regulatory model starts to talk about, okay, let's think of a new system design. So one way that some people in Britain have started thinking about this is the idea of duty of care, which is like workplace safety. So there are lots of jobs that are dangerous, but it's your job as the employer to ensure that that workplace is as safe as possible. So of course, social media can be used to spread types of speech that we may not like, that we may disagree with, but there should be some duty of care to make sure that If I'm somebody who's searching for something about self-harm, I don't get pulled down the rabbit hole. Hmm. You know, one question is what's the right set of regulations and so on. And we'll get more into that in a moment. But I guess I slightly wonder whether the solution is going to be regulating what can be on Twitter or how the algorithm works 
or the part of it is also human beings learning to use the social media platforms in a more responsible way. And I don't know how optimistic I am about that, but in the end, I think if we don't change our attitude towards the social media platforms, if we incentivize the same behavior, no amount of regulation and certainly no amount of censorship can save us. But it may be that we just shift how we interact with this. And I have a couple of points there which make me optimistic, right? So one is about sort of hedonic adaptation. I mean, you get a new computer game, a new video game, and you're going to be playing it all the time because it's so fun, it's so new, it's so exciting. And then after a week or two, it's sort of worn off a little bit and it doesn't give you the same happiness anymore. So you're not drawn to it in the same way. I wonder whether some of that may happen with social media platforms. It certainly happened, I find, in my own life and that I think of many people around me on Facebook, which is not as vibrant a community as it used to be. And perhaps the same will happen to Twitter, which now I think has a pretty negative force on the world. And then the other thing is that social norms may build around those platforms. I mean, at the moment, there's no social cost that people pay in real life for being absolute, excuse me, assholes on Twitter. But that may change. We may start to have stereotypes about, you know, Twitter assholes. And you understand and internalize, you don't want to be one of those Twitter assholes, right? So there can be sort of changes in behavior like that. So before we jump to the regulation, I mean, do you think it is mostly, and I'm not saying it's not necessary, but is it mostly about changing what Twitter is? Or is it mostly about changing how people use Twitter and what they're incentivized to do there and how seriously they take the content they see on Twitter and so on and so forth? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. And anybody who wants to come up with a solution that just attacks companies is really going about this in the wrong way because people adapt pretty fast. And I think we often forget how incredibly new these platforms are. So we have this assumption they're going to be around forever. When did I get on Facebook? Well, I was a Cambridge undergrad, so that was pretty early 2005, 2006. That's not a long time ago. And now what we've seen actually in the last year, one study found that 44% of people between the ages of 18 and 29 deleted the Facebook app from their phone. Hmm. That's an extraordinary number. That is a fast adaptation. By the way, dear listeners, I have deleted the Twitter app from my phone. I'm still on Twitter. I'm not one of those writers who are doing the big announcement that I'm quitting Twitter and then come crawling back two weeks later. When I have an article, I'll put it out on Twitter. When I'm angry about something in the world, I might tweet about it but it's not on my phone. So I look at it a few times a day, perhaps. My quality of life has improved so radically. <laughs> it is incredible what not being insulted by random people 10 times a day on Twitter does to your psyche. It really is much, much better. So this is not a self-help podcast, as you all know, but if I have one piece of self-help advice, delete Twitter from your phone. I love that you said that because I recently also did the same thing. Oh, really? And I think it's a really good example of self-adaptation. Mm -hmm. So the way in which many people have started to create that minor barrier towards social media, you know, Apple iPhones have the same thing where you can now set the amount of time you want to spend on social media or on a certain app. So I think that what we may start to see is also the profitability of helping people constrain their habits, which we hadn't really thought about before. Mm -hmm. So the social media model is get as much engagement as possible. The iPhone model is starting to be, we're going to help you constrain that habit. Yeah, interesting. And it could be that we see a lot of other products that are then profiting from a completely different business model, which is about 
Okay, let's constrain engagement with something that now increasing numbers of studies are indicating has negative psychological effects. You know that, but they also have addictive properties, so you need something to help you. So I think there's a lot to be said for the ways in which we see actually quite large numbers of people adapting their own behaviors. And that's a certain part of what is going on alongside just bashing companies. People also do have a certain amount of choice as to how much they do. And there's just pretty large percentages of people choosing to put those small barriers in the way of constantly checking Facebook or Twitter or something else because they actually recognize the ways in which it's detrimental for their own mental health. So let's talk about regulation. One of what strikes me is that people normally jump into that debate without actually having an overview of what the options are. So people debate in Europe GDPR, which is this really ambitious piece of legislation that the European Union passed, which means that now when you go on any website, you have to click OK seven times for the cookie settings. There's actually no way of not clicking OK. So it's just a waste of time. Anyway, I'm not going to get started on that. There's a huge debate at the moment in Europe about the upload filter and so on. But I feel like I don't actually have a good overview of what the option set of regulation is and how to think of those things as particular choices among that set. So what are the basic choices we have about how to regulate or not regulate social media? Yeah, I think it's a great question because I'd say, let's say three years ago, the debate was more around if we should regulate in this space. That has radically changed and the question is now how and when. But often the assumption is we're going to go full on state intervention regulation. But there's actually broad-based three models of how this could function. And a lot of them draw on historical models of the press, for example. So you've got self-regulation. So in a place like the UK or in the US, it's a self-regulatory model of the press. Or you've got co-regulation, where the state essentially forces the industry to decide on how to regulate itself, to come up with its own rules, and then the state can enforce if the industry breaks the rules that it's set for itself. Or finally, you've got the kind of heavy regulation model where the state creates the regulation and then enforces it. And I think all of those actually are on the table, but the impulse, especially in Europe, is to move towards that final one, the state version, which I think, especially in the case of the press, has potentially extremely long-term unintended consequences because you might like it when a certain leader is in power, but when another more authoritarian-leaning leader is in power, you may feel less comfortable about the state regulating the world of freedom of expression. And I know from your historical work, you have an argument that that's essentially what happened in the Weimar Republic with radio, right? That there was this person who basically wanted to regulate radio as much as possible to make sure that it couldn't serve the propaganda purposes of anti-democratic opponents. But then once Hitler gained power, it actually is what delivered Hitler the ability to completely control radio. Can you tell us about that history briefly? I can. It's a history that I think in some ways you can begin best by taking a quote from Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister. So in August of 1933, he gives a speech and he says, we, the Nazis, couldn't have come to power and held it like we did without the airplane and the radio. And what he really means is the airplane was this modern invention that lets Hitler fly around everywhere and give speeches and look like this fantastic modern leader. But that they held power because of the radio. And the irony is that when the radio is created, early 1920s, it's the early years of the Weimar democracy. It's pretty restive, lots of uprisings. There's a bureaucrat called Hans von Bredow who thinks, okay, I've got to create a radio system. 
but I've got to make sure that there isn't too much politics on this because we don't want to excite mm. this population further. So I'd better make sure there's some state supervision of content so it's not going to excite this population. Mm. And the more restive the Weimar Republic becomes, the more febrile, the Great Depression hits, 30% of people are unemployed, the more that Bredo and state officials think, okay, we better have more and more state supervision over content, and that's a way to try and protect this democracy. Mm. But what it ironically means is when the Nazis come to power, they effectively have control over radio content, and they, of course, will use that to broadcast Hitler's speeches and so on and so forth, and to consolidate their power in those first few months of 1933, when it's not clear that they will be able to establish the dictatorship that they end up doing. And that goes back to an argument that I've often made about freedom of speech, which is that the debate sometimes is framed over whether there are some forms of speech that don't have any value. And it's implied that the people who defend freedom of speech must think that even the most vile forms of hate speech somehow have value for the world. That's not the classical argument for freedom of speech. That's not why I believe in freedom of speech. It's that I don't believe in any particular set of institutions or people who can make the decision of what should be allowed or what shouldn't be allowed for me. Because I can't be sure that they're going to have the right values, that they're going to have the right motives, and that the right set of people are going to be in the position to make those decisions. But that brings us back to content. So I think you outlined very nicely the three basic models of regulation. We can have self-regulation, co-regulation, or sort of top-down regulation. And I think you make a good argument perhaps for a form of co-regulation. But what about the content of it? I mean, what should that regulation, whoever puts it in place, actually look like? So one way I've thought about this is through having something that you could call a social media council, or whatever you want to call it, because this is a super rapidly evolving space. So I think if we try to do anything like say, okay, maybe content algorithms should look like X. Well, that's going to be meaningless in five years when it's really about VR, virtual reality, mm. images, videos, whatever it is. So what we need instead is an institution where social media companies, civil society, and government continuously meet to discuss these questions and actually exchange best practices in a meaningful way. So that's what I think is a social media council where effectively what the government does is say, we need to have an institution where we regularly meet and we discuss these issues. Something like, okay, there's an upcoming election. What do we think are going to be the threats to election integrity? Do you, Reddit, have a good solution to this? Hey, maybe Facebook should take on that solution as well. So the fines would come in for the companies that don't participate in that institutionalized space for discussion. Because I think the problem is if we regulate or try to even think about regulating content, we're always going to be five years behind mm -hmm. the time. And so what we need instead is a space to discuss those questions, create greater transparency. So, for example, things like a public data access bill, something suggested by the Virginia Senator Mark Warner. That's a really great idea. Then we can actually have solid research on which we can then continue to have real debates about what is going on. But that's my kind of idea about an institution rather than going after any specific types of content, which I think can lead down these very dangerous paths you're just describing. One classic problem in public administration is that the regulators always end up being captured by the people they're supposed to regulate. So especially if this is a form of co-regulation, if it's essentially a voluntary industry association that governs itself with a state just sort of hovering over it in case it fails to do the right thing, how do we make sure that companies don't participate pro forma, that this isn't a kind of industry rubber stamp that actually allows them to do whatever they want? 
So I think that's where the sort of co-regulatory piece is key, so that in discussions there are certain aspects of, let's say, transparency, that you have a real discussion with companies and say, listen, we don't expect you to reveal all your trade secrets, but we do expect a certain level of transparency, but let's actually have a real discussion about what that should look like. So for example, let's, let's take the analogy of newspapers. We've never had editors justifying to us every day why they put X story on the front page or Y story on the front page. There were limits to that. That mm. was an editorial judgment. Mm. And I think we can allow the same for social media companies. We don't need them to tell us everything. But with newspapers, we could say, all right, here is the output that we are seeing. We can analyze that. We also know what the input was, i.e. the events that happened in the world. And what we don't have for social media companies at this moment is we actually don't know what the output is for various groups of people. So that's an example of where you would sit in a room with social media companies and say, listen, this is the sort of thing that we need to have a good sense of because we need to know for election integrity or whatever else it is, what's the outcome? Okay, this is what you can provide. You've got until X date to do it. You've agreed to do it. If you don't produce it, there's gonna be a fine. But you, social media companies, along with civil society and others, you helped us define what that would mean. And then we, the state, will come in and fine you on the basis of something that you yourself helped to generate. So that's pretty convincing to me. How would you say the actually existing initiatives stack up to that? So when you look at things like GDPR, at the big fight that's ongoing at the moment of the European Union about something called upload filters, and I have no idea what it is, you'll have to explain it to me, about some of the sort of anti-terror social media legislation that we're seeing. Can you tell us a little bit about the nature of these legislative initiatives and whether in light of the kind of model you're advocating, they're a step in the right direction or a step in the wrong direction? So the European Union is really being the most active on this over the last couple of years. And a couple of the things that you've mentioned, I think, are the most interesting to talk about because they may be going a little bit far in a direction that could be concerning. So the question of upload filters is to do with new copyright legislation, essentially saying that companies need to pre-filter, i.e. filter when people are uploading to see if something is contravening copyright or not. And that potentially destroys the internet as we know it. Things like memes can't necessarily exist mm -hmm. if you are doing upload filters. Why not? Well, because the companies will probably, and this is the fear, they will err on the side of caution. So they will over-delete in order not to be fined. And so the idea is just that a lot of memes are based, say, on like a photograph from a movie. Exactly. And so if somebody says, hey, we are the owner of this movie, you obviously can't just put the whole damn movie on YouTube. Internet companies are going to say, hey, hang on a second, this is still from that movie, that's copyrighted, you can't do that. Exactly. Or there's even just simple questions like, what is fair use? Because fair use is based on a number of criteria, including how far something is spread. So for example, let's say I'm a student writing a paper for a professor. I can include a photo that if I uploaded on Wikipedia, that wouldn't be allowed because it would mm. contravene copyright. But in my small piece of academic work, it's fair use. And there's a lot of cases on the internet where that's actually pretty blurry because it can be disseminated fairly far. Right. And with these questions of new upload filters, tricky because if I'm an internet company, of course I'm going to err on the side of caution yeah, yeah. and I'm going to delete that So stuff. even if somebody wants to upload it to a Twitter account of 50 followers, the fact that it could go super viral and reach 10 million people means let's just censor it. Exactly. A lot of this is also about the potential of where mm -hmm. these issues can go. So the proposed EU terrorist content regulation is maybe a good example to make this clear. So this is currently really quite close to the final stages within European Commission debates. The idea is to have a new 
regulation for terrorist content, which would ask companies to delete things that are constituted as terrorist content, either within one hour of it being uploaded mm. or even before it's uploaded. And there are a couple of things that are troubling about this legislation, one of which is that there isn't a solid definition of what terrorism is. And so the concern here is, for some leaders, how might they potentially abuse this legislation? Well, and Recep Erdogan in Turkey has for a long time been calling critical journalists terrorists with abandon. In fact, I was once in New York City in front of a business audience. Erdogan was being interviewed and he talked about all the terrorist journalists in his country and all the sort of assembled New York elite politely applauded him to my shock and horror. But certainly if you allow leaders like that to say, hey, uh, this critical piece in Hurriyet is just terrorist propaganda and therefore it needs to be banned, though it have very profound implications for freedom of speech. And indeed, if you said this particular type of content that is pro-immigration, that is terrorist content and it needs to be removed, that's deeply troubling and very problematic. So I think that's an example of a, of a type of legislation. Of course, there's a lot of things that are very well-meaning behind it. I think we can all agree that we don't want violent extremism, but the question is how this can potentially be instrumentalized by more authoritarian-leaning leaders and whether this is a tool that we really want to hand over to countries where in 10 years' time the leadership may not be something that we like. And that's where I think these historical examples are very instructive because from the historical perspective, we look at the 10, 15 year perspective. So not what's going to happen in the European parliamentary elections in May, but what's going to happen in 10 years time? And how can this stuff be abused? And what is going to happen if a far right or a far left leader comes to power with authoritarian leaning tendencies who categorizes A, B and C thing as terrorism, and then social media companies are forced to comply because that's hmm. EU regulation. I guess I have one question for, which is that when you talk about your solution to this, which is essentially a procedural sidestep, right? It's to say that rather than having positive legislation that says, this is what social media companies should do, this is what they shouldn't do, it is to create a council which can determine those kinds of questions in an ongoing way. Now, I think that has an obvious advantage because it's dynamic. It doesn't set in stone legislation that's likely going to be on the books for the next 20 years. It can evolve over time. But ultimately, Aren't we facing some basic trade-offs which are still going to be in place? I mean, ultimately, isn't there a substantive question about whether we want to err on the side of not allowing ISIS to abuse the internet in order to infiltrate the mind of disgruntled 15-year-olds? But in the process of ensuring that, it also opens the door to certain forms of abuse? Or whether we want to say, no, freedom of speech is such an important good that we're willing to grant ISIS some space to try and do propaganda? Isn't there ultimately just a real substantive trade-off which that council you talk about would still have to come down on one side or the other off and it still is going to have real normative costs because it's a dilemma and whichever horn you pick is not ideal. That's right. And that's another, I think, lesson from this history is that there's never going to be a moment that is going to satisfy everybody. And that's Part of what freedom of speech gives us is 
this constant trade-off and this constant dilemma. And another way that I've thought about this is to think about it through terms like harmful speech. So we tend to talk about hate speech, which in Europe and in Canada is actually an illegal category. But if we think about something like harmful speech, there are lots of types of speech that are not necessarily illegal, but they prevent what we might call free, full and fair discussion online. So somebody who gets insulted by a bunch of people, and we can tell from the research we have so far that predominantly affects women and minorities, right? So they don't necessarily have as fair and full an ability to engage online. And we also have an extraordinary amount of research that shows us that those groups also tend to not even engage because they worry about the sorts of abuse they may receive. So I think that that is a trade-off and a dilemma that we have been struggling with for centuries. And we've really started to push on it over the last couple of decades where we've had many more voices. And so the point is to figure out where do we balance on this trade-off? And it's a bit like a tightrope. We're mm. constantly going to be fighting this battle. But the point is that we figure out what are the poles around which we're going to fight it? What are the trade-offs we're actually making? Mm. And we make sure that they're democratic ones, like the ones that you just described. That that's the debate that we're having rather than one that seems to be about how do we censor as many people as possible, which I worry leads us in a direction that hands a bunch of tools to authoritarians that we may well regret extremely swiftly handing to them, that we make sure that freedom of expression and debates about how that should happen online, that that's a really key part of it. And that's why I like this expression of free, full and fair. So we start talking about it's not just freedom of speech, but also how do we provide the full ability for every citizen to have that and a level, fair playing field to speak, but also to be heard. And that becomes a different, I think, more productive debate that can also be a little bit more positive without being about censorship. So you spoke about authoritarian powers and about the tools that this hands of them. Obviously, there's a much wider context, which we haven't talked much about in this conversation yet, which is the attempt of countries like Russia and perhaps increasingly other authoritarian countries like China to use the internet to divide people within countries against each other and to spread their side of the story, to be able to spread propaganda around the world. How worried are you about that? And is there some interesting vantage point that history can give us in order to make sure of collusion in 2016? The book that I've just finished writing is essentially a book about how Germans try to control world communications in the first half of the 20th century. And one of the key arguments that I'm making is it shows us that information warfare, if we want to use that term, it's actually a feature of the international system, not a bug. And often the way we've been talking about it since 2016 is as if this is a completely new feature of the international system that totally surprised us all. And instead, my argument is, no, the history tells us this is a feature, not a bug. 1990s, early 2000s, quite exceptional in lots of ways because it's not really a feature. So the interesting question is not that. The interesting question is, why is it that certain countries at a particular moment resort to information warfare? Why do they become invested in it? And the argument that I'm making is, it's when certain countries come to believe that they are global or imperial powers and information is a pretty cheap way to actually try to affect geopolitics, economics or cultural attitudes towards that country. So you see Germany around 1900 stops thinking of itself as a continental power, starts to acquire colonies, 
wants to think of itself as a global power, wants to be in the same league as Britain or as France. It looks at the information system that exists at that moment. It sees British-dominated submarine cable system and says, okay, we have to change this. We're going to invest in new wireless technology that eventually becomes radio so we can bypass this system and send news from Germany to Latin America, to East Asia, to convey the German point of view, to convey news from Germany. And that to me seems to be a pattern that's really quite similar to something that Russia is doing, China is doing, similar to an Al Jazeera, which in many ways has fallen out of the conversation, but very much fits into the same pattern. Mm. So in many ways, we can think about this not so much as a media problem, but a geopolitical problem. So say a little bit more about that. I'm trying to understand in the case of Russia, for example, what the purpose of this information warfare is. And I guess I'd also have a pushback about Russia, because Russia thought of itself as very much a global power until quite recently. And then it had this moment of weakness in the 90s and the early 2000s. So isn't this just a sort of return to type, where Russia has always thought of itself as a global power, and that helps to explain what it's now doing? I think that's definitely part of it. So the Soviet Union, from the very beginning, tries to use news as a way to foment global revolution. Mm. The Soviet news agency, which was called TASS, also tried to send its news into China, into Africa, et cetera, et cetera. So it's actually, that was quite a strong feature of part of what the Soviet Union was doing. So I'd say that's another place where it's a sort of feature, not a bug. So what you're saying is, because I think the way I understood you the first time round was that it has to be a power that's newly global, and that's what helps to explain Germany. But perhaps that's not exactly right, is that any power that thinks of itself as a global player is going to try and shape the global media environment. And the Soviet Union always did that. In the brief moment in which Russia was sort of weak and didn't think of itself as a global power in the 90s and early 2000s, it didn't do that. And now it's back to type. Now it's back to what we should expect to happen naturally. That's a much more eloquent way of putting it. That's exactly right. So that helps us to understand sometimes it's a country that actually is a global power in the case of, say, the United States, but often it can be a country that aspires to be a global power. And information is a cheap way of achieving this when you can't necessarily exert as much geopolitical or economic influence. It doesn't mean that you won't use information. In fact, you're likelier to use information alongside those other tools because it's cheaper and you come to see it as more effective, as an easier way to infiltrate a huge number of places around the world when you say don't have money for a massive diplomatic call. So do you think that the Soviet Union was actually quite effective at these forms of information warfare, for example, within the United States during the Cold War? And we've just forgotten about the history of that effective information warfare because everything was nice and quiet in the 90s and 2000s? Or do you think that Russia is now more effective at doing that? And if Russia is more effective at doing that now, at disrupting our democracy through this, than the Soviet Union was earlier, why is that? Is that because of changes in technology, where Russia just has better tools through social media and RT and other things to influence debate within the United States? Or is it perhaps because our antibodies are weaker, because our democracy is more divided because people are more unhappy with a government in any case, and that just makes the system more vulnerable to that kind of form of outside influence. I think that's exactly one of the major points, is that 
trust in institutions is one of the key indicators as to whether something like conspiracy theories are going to be more effective. So one of the reasons why some of these attempts to spread disinformation have at least theoretically been more effective or been far more reported on is because the general American trust in institutions is far lower. And that I think is a point that actually Walter Lippmann makes in the 1920s. So Walter Lippmann, major political theorist in the early 1920s, what he's really obsessed with is media. So he writes a book in early 20s called Public Opinion, hmm. where he looks at the way in which trust in media was really, in some ways, quite undermined by World War I, where he and many others are working for the US government, producing propaganda. And he says, look, the problem is we're expecting media to actually uphold institutions. And the judiciary and politicians are also expecting media to uphold institutions. But the reality is media can't do that. We need strong institutions in and of themselves. And I think that is a really key point. I'm not sure I got that point. So why is it that media can't do that? Or how is it that we're expecting too much from media in this context? And what does that tell us for what our relationship to the New York Times and Washington Post and all of those things that define the kind of tribe of people who listen to the good fight? How should we de-romanticize the role that they can play? So Lippmann's point was, and he puts it quite eloquently, that the expectation is that working on people for 30 minutes out of every 24 hours, we are expecting newspapers to inform every person about everything. And there are several problems with that. Number one, it's impossible for us to know about everything through 30 minutes. And number two, people interpret the world through the stereotypes they hold in their head. And Lippmann actually coins the term stereotype as we understand it today. So he's saying, well, when I read the newspaper, I interpret the news through the stereotypes I have in my own head. And so we cannot expect media to create the omnicompetent, informed citizen. And it's going to be a problem if we're expecting media to do that and that that's the way we think we're going to uphold our institutions. There are a whole bunch of other things we need to do to make our institutions strong. And so I think this is a trap that potentially some of us are falling into at this moment when we see Russian attempts at disinformation. The idea is, well, if we just solve that problem, if we solve the media business model crisis, everything else is going to be fine. Mm. But that clearly is not true. We have a decline in trust in so many other institutions. And it's a, it's a problem, I say, as somebody who studies the media, if we solely focus on the media part of this, which sometimes is a symptom, not a cause of much of the malaise and distrust in institutions that we see in American society. Yeah, I mean, that seems right to me when I think of something like the confrontation between the comic high school students and some of the Native American protesters in front of the Lincoln Memorial. You know, no doubt there were some Russian bots trying to amplify the fight over it. I'm pretty sure that that was very marginal. I mean, the ability of our society to divide into two neat tribes about something as ultimately unimportant and irrelevant as that particular event and the vitriol with which each side regards the other uh, is truly scary. And it's something to do with, with a loss of trust, with a rise of partisanship, with an even bigger rise of negative partisanship, which doesn't need Russia in order to take place. I think that's right. And one of the key things to recognize about what the Internet Research Agency, one of the Russian-funded aspects of this, was doing is it was seizing on divisions that already existed within American society and was seeking to amplify them. 
But if that division hadn't existed, that wouldn't have been the thing that the Internet Research Agency is seizing upon. I think that's a key point that often gets lost in the obsession about Russian bots or what have you. That I, I mean, I guess the question is how much it amplified it, right? Because if they were pre-existing but it managed to amplify it by tenfold, then there would still be a lot of the thing we should be concerned about. My hunch is that it amplifies it by like 2%. But I'm not sure what that hunch is based on. So let me put this question in a slightly different way, which is, we have a dog that hasn't yet barked here, which is China. China has a global news network called CGTN, which is an equivalent to RT in many ways. It has the resources and the cultural skills, the people who know the United States well, to easily rival something like the Internet Research Agency. It could have an army of bots, an army of social media disruptors that is more sophisticated, more active than Russia, without a doubt. And yet it doesn't seem to have done so much of that yet. CGTN, while certainly not especially critical of the Chinese government, is not actively trying to divide Americans against each other. So far as we can tell, China has not engaged in a lot of disruptive internet activity as we're seeing it from Russian-aligned bots every day. Why is that? But beyond that, does it matter? If China did devote all of these resources to doing that, would it actually make things much worse? Or does the Russian example make us think, no, that would be annoying, it would change things at the margins, but because it's ultimately about the divisions in our own society, it's ultimately about the tribalism we have here, we shouldn't actually worry about China getting onto the same boat. There's probably two parts to that question. So the first bit is why China? And the second bit is does this stuff really matter? Mm. To answer the question of why China is acting differently than Russia, I think it's a geopolitical question. What is it that China is really trying to achieve with this media? So in the case of Russia, it's about disruption, sowing chaos in Western societies. China's aims, although I'm not an expert in Chinese politics, but from my perspective, China's aims are quite different, which is that China is economically successful and relies mm. upon the West for that economic success. So if you create political chaos, you're also mm. undermining the economic power of the places that are buying your goods. So that doesn't make geopolitical or geoeconomic sense for you. But what we can see, and I think where we actually need to look more carefully, is places like Africa, where we have CCTV Africa. It would be really interesting to know the ways in which that is portraying Chinese politics yeah. in order to amplify the already very strong links between Chinese investment in African infrastructure. I think those would be the places that mm. I would be interested in looking or in places that are key to One Belt, One Road. So seeing how far that kind of Chinese media portrayal in those countries is trying to shape also the uptake on One Belt, One Road stuff. So less what's going on in the US and more in those kinds of places. But it seems to me that Chinese aims are very different and that's part of what explains what's going on. I'd also add as a sidebar that there are some people looking at what Chinese ownership of smaller media companies within, for example, Czech Republic, etc., is doing to media coverage. And what they've tended to find is that most of the journalism remains the same. It's coverage about China that changes. Right. So that's some stuff that we already know is true. It agenda sets about what those newspapers then report on China and how they report it. The second question of whether this stuff really matters, that goes back to an old, old debate about media effects. I mean, what is even the effect of media? And, and one way we can think about it is that it agenda sets. So that's what China's trying to do. But it can also amplify beliefs that we already hold. One article that I read about something in the New York Times is not going to change my entire worldview. Mm. But 
multiple articles about something may amplify a belief that I already held. So, for example, it's nowhere near beyond the realm of possibility to believe that some of the Russian attempts at interference in 2016 amplified the intention of various people not to go and vote because they thought this election didn't really matter. Right. And that's a different thing than whether they completely changed people's minds. Right. Yeah. I mean, these ideas of brainwashing where, you know, which Cambridge Analytica also made in a different kind of context were always ridiculous. But we know you so well and we're just going to, you know, push the right button and suddenly the sort of Berkeley grad student who's always voted Democrat all of his life becomes a Trump fan. I and mean, that's utterly ridiculous. Right. But the idea that it can strategically play on your worst instincts is perhaps more realistic. And I think that's one of the areas where social media enables something very new, which is the micro-targeting. Hmm. So that you can be far more effective in reaching the exact group of people that you want to reach based on lookalike audiences or other kinds of advertising tools that Facebook and other social media companies offer to you. And that is quite different than the sort of blanket way you have to target people with radio, TV, or leaflets. So that kind of micro-targeting is to me one of the new innovations that means that with fairly little money, you can actually amplify to quite a great degree. So if this kind of information warfare is just a feature rather than a bug of the international system, what does that imply for the United States and for Western European powers? Should they be thinking actively in terms of information warfare themselves? And if so, what does that mean? Does that just mean sort of doubling the funding for something like Voice for America? Or should we be doing things beyond that to make sure that our side of the story actually is competing with those emboldened authoritarian narratives? We should worry about and analyze information warfare, understand it as part of geopolitics. And that's a reframing of how I think we've thought about it before. So that's the number one thing. So number two is to pay attention to our own media systems, to really think about the ways that we want to reinvent them, reinvigorate them for a digital age, whether it is new types of investigative journalism, online websites, but especially local news. Because one thing we know from, from quite a few studies is that when local news outlets disappear, what we see is that down-ballot voting in the United States increases significantly. So that tells us that the removal of local news actually increases partisanship. So we need local news as a way of informing citizens and trying to decrease some of this noxious partisanship, toxic partisanship that has developed. The third thing that I think we can learn is, as I said before, not to solely think about the problems in our society as media problems. We can just fix the media system, we'll all be fine. We have to think about this as a broader institutional question. It has to push us to think about how do we tackle growing inequality? We can't just fix the media business model and then we'll be fine. You cannot paper over people's lived realities. And mm. there is a tendency with a lot of these discussions to think, let's just give people the right metaphors to understand the world. And they'll sort of forget about the fact that they have three different jobs and they're scared about going bankrupt if their car breaks down. Those are lived realities that a different media system cannot paper over. And that, I think, is a really important message from someone who spends her life studying media to politicians and others who think they can fix this and that will magically fix everything else. Well, Heidi, you've managed to do the impossible, which is not only make me understand a whole bunch of things that I was very confused about for a long time, but actually leave me a little bit more optimistic at the end of the conversation. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's super fun. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friend all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Start a good old-fashioned telephone chain, ringing 10 friends to talk to them about The Good Fight and asking each of them to do the same for 10 other people. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.